Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, October 11th, as we begin the round of 32 in the men's singles draw, as we conclude that round for the women here on Monday, it's all starting to make sense at the 2021 Indian Wells. I think we've all grown accustomed to the conditions at this point. It is damn near impossible for just about any player to hit a winner on this surface, particularly if you are playing in the night session, of course. Conversely, if you're a big server, particularly a man 6'6 or taller, that kick serve you hit, it's going to be amplified in these conditions. You're going to have that much more time to get to the net if you're serving and volleying, that much more time to run around the ball, play whichever plus one stroke you prefer. As such, fascinating week of tennis unfolding over in California. And of course, on today's podcast, as we've done throughout the course of the event, I want to recap all of Sunday's matches. It was the back half of the round of 64 for the men. First half of the round of 32 for the women. We saw plenty of upsets scattered throughout the day. Of course, it is notable for the men 27 of the 32 seeds advanced to the third round. That's the most since the tournament expanded to the 32 seed 96 player format back in 2004. We've talked about the generational shift all season long. It's notable that at the end of the season, we have some stability. We start to know who is who, who is capable of what at each and every event. Of course, something we are all wondering, what is Andy Murray still capable of? In, at this point in his career, Murray delivering the victory, maybe even the match of the day. Three-set victory for him over young Carlos Alcaraz. Of course, 
We're breaking down that match on today's show. I want to talk about some exciting three-setters on the women's side as well. Of course, I have to talk about Fernandez Pavlichenkova, our nightcap. I want to talk about Simona Halep getting knocked off in another strong performance from Alexandra Sasinovich. Run through again all of the day's upsets, all of the day's most notable results. Of course, by the time you're hearing this, you will likely have seen some of Monday's matches, so we're not going to touch on that on this podcast, of course. I do want to remind all of you we're making picks each and every morning over on our Great Shot podcast feed. If you want to hear those Ace of the Day segments, just be sure to like, rate, subscribe, review the Great Shot podcast wherever you are listening to your podcast. Of course, you can find all of those episodes on our website, CrackedRackets.com as well. I do want to point out some non-Indian Wells-related content we've had of late in particular. There's always so much challenger action going on each and every week. There were four last week. In case you missed any of those results, shout out to my birthday twin, Juan Pablo Varias. He earns a challenger title last week. He needs it. He's got a ton of points to defend here at the end of the season, but four challengers all discussed on the Monday edition of the Great Shot podcast hosted by Cracked Rackets contributors Damian Kust and Jakob Bobro. So if you missed anything at that level of play, you can catch up on it all with that episode. Of course, before we get into today's show, I do also want to lastly remind all of you listeners that the reason these episodes are made possible day in day out here on the mini break podcast feed is because of the support we get from all of you because of the support we get from our crack rackets patreon family who of course are also privy to match of the day segments today's match of the day cam nori taking on roberto bautista agut if you're looking for more indian wells bonus content or you just like to support our work here at crack rackets you become a member of our crack rackets patreon family today by going to the website crackrackets.com of course a shout out as always last but certainly not least to our friends over at tennis point who sincerely without them this podcast cannot go daily so if you would like to support their support of us just get your tennis equipment with them it's very simple tennis-point.com it's two words oh i know there's another tennis something out there that provides equipment trust me the prices with our friends at tennis point they're better the equipment selection choice is just as vast tennis-point.com you use that promo code cr15 not only will you let them know we sent you there you'll get 15 percent off your order free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding 75 dollars best of all a free can of wilson uh extra duty tennis balls of course certain restrictions do apply but again, tennis-point.com, the symbol, not the spelling, tennis-point, the promo code is CR15. With all of that said, let's get into day four of Indian Wells, and listeners of this podcast will know, am I a host, co-host of the Murray Musing podcast, which of course I've had the opportunity to go on, which focuses solely on each and everything Andy Murray is doing? No, but I like to think I'm a scholar in the church of Andy Murray. I like to think I can go toe-to-toe with anyone if we're talking Murray facts when I'm not going to do that for all of you listeners right now. But look, Andy Murray was... He was the hipster choice. That's why he has such a cult following because in the era of people like me growing up, you know, when you're in your teens in the big three era, big four era, everyone was a Federer fan. Everyone was a Nadal fan. Now, Djokovic is an interesting case, and that's a discussion for another time. But if you wanted to be the outlier, you would have the take that Andy Murray's best is as good as the rest of them and that his best can sometimes even be better than those groups. And I think if you listeners have learned anything about me, you know I don't mind having an outlier opinion or two, and there's just a tenacity Murray has always played with. You can, you know, not only can you hear 
uh, the struggles he goes through on court in each and every match. And for me, that was always part of the appeal. He was just always the most human of the superstars in the men's game. Federer, cool as a cucumber. Nadal, just so intense, so focused on getting the job done. And then Djokovic, superhuman athletically. I just didn't feel like I could do any of those things. Now, of course, I could never do what Andy Murray does. I'm not trying to draw an equivalent there. But the struggles he faces, the swearing on the court, the yelling at the people who are watching him, the frustration at imperfection, the chase of perfection on each and every point, that is something I think every tennis player can relate to. And so that was what always had me gravitating towards Andy Murray, of course, I will continue to say it. I think if Djokovic is 1A, just based on longevity, Murray's 1B in terms of the best returners in ATP Tour history. I think Murray's backhand at his best goes toe-to-toe with Novak Djokovic. And then again, just go watch the Australian Open semifinal they played. Of course, Nadal versus Djokovic and in Australia will always be, in 2012, some people's match of all time. But I'm telling you, it's the 2012 semifinal, Murray versus Djokovic. You can throw out the fourth set because Djokovic rocks Murray in that set. But the other four sets, they're the four most physical sets, and it is the single most physical match I've ever watched played on a tennis court. And by the way, that's why Murray's hips now lie. That's why he's got a medal. You know, it's why they're not real anymore. It's why they're synthetic. You play enough matches like that, unless you're on that voodoo shit that Djokovic is on, you're going to suffer physically at some point. But look, for Andy Murray, there's no denying he is starting to play the best tennis he has played. I mean, you can't even draw an equivalency to 2016 where he was 80-9 and nine overall in the year. It's not that Andy Murray anymore. Even towards the start of 2017, he was still, still clearly a top-five guy, maybe not that dominant number one, but still clearly competing in each and every match he plays and every event he plays. He's not quite there either anymore, but he is working his way back to top-50 form, and I know that sounds... You know, again, it, I'm cringing. Uh, there's goosebumps going up my spine as I say, oh, Andy Murray top 50 as a victory. But let's be clear what he's gone through physically. In 2019, he played 16 total matches. In 2020, he played seven total matches. 2018, 15 total matches. To have him back on court at all playing, you know, more than 20 matches here down the home stretch of 2021, it's a victory. For all of us Andy Murray fans, and for mo- most importantly, to see his level continue to improve throughout the course of the year, Wimbledon was fool's gold. I know I've said this on a couple of podcasts, and I know sometimes people get a little bit frustrated when I do say that, but just be honest with yourself. If you watched Andy Murray's performance against Nicholas Basilashvili, the amount of slices he was hitting out of the corners of the court That's not vintage Andy Murray. That's not the Murray whose backhand out of the corner, again, rivals Novak Djokovic, and I hate to say it, but probably Alex Virov now as, you know, the best backhands out of the corner I have ever seen in the men's game. And of course, you know, for Murray, his never-say-die attitude, just his ability to track down that extra ball and just force you repeatedly to have to make one extra shot to put him away— that wasn't the Murray we saw against Basilishvili. Now, we saw the tactical Murray. We saw Murray incorporate Slice to throw Basilishvili off of his rhythm. We saw him scrap and claw for points in every way possible. But I don't think he played particularly well 
in that match. I don't think he played particularly well against Oscar Ota in the second round either in that five-set victory. And then, you know, over the next few couple of events against Shapovalov, you know, straight set loss for him in the round of 32. And then he goes to Cincinnati, beats Gasquet, could keep pace with Hercots through one set and, you know, was up a break in that first set. But you could just tell as the match went on physically, he wasn't quite there. Hercots takes that in straights, you know, against Tiafo, same deal, physical first set. He fades a bit at the end, loses that in straights. Since the Tsitsipas, uh, since the Tiafo match, though, the five sets at the U.S. Open against Tsitsipas, I still don't think that was his cleanest tennis, but that was significantly better. He was hitting through his backhand out of the corners. He was just getting to those corners more fluidly and perhaps most impressively getting out of those corners a little bit more easily. But then most impressively, it's the jump he's made on serve, obviously. You look for Andy Murray here this season. Uh, he's winning, I believe, 71%, uh, 72% of his first serve points. You look at the numbers, though, since Wimbledon, he's won over 80% of his first serve points, I believe, on seven, uh, excuse me, eight different occasions in the 13 matches that he's played. That's the difference right there. Again, it's it's the first serve. It's being more aggressive with that serve. And you just look at his run since then. Quarterfinals at the Moselle Open. Impressive three-set win over a powerful Ugo Umber. That's the sort of guy with the weapons, you know, that would hurt, you know, Shapovalov. Tsitsipas, Hercat, those sort of weapons. Murray's physicality wasn't quite there early in his return. It was in Moselle. He plays another 6-3 and three match against Hercat's very high level. Beats Kudla before an impressive, again, physical 5-4 and four loss to eventual San Diego champion Casper Ruud. The Adrian Manorino match looked routine in his first-round match at Indian Wells. 3-2 and two victory. Manorino couldn't hurt him at all on these courts. He was tracking everything down, doing whatever he wanted on the tennis court. And look, quick starts have been the theme for Andy Murray in his comeback of late. You go to the Tsitsipas match. He wins that first set 6-2. You get the break leads in the first sets over Hercots, over Tiafo uh, in both Winston-Salem and Cincinnati. Came out firing against Carlos Alcaraz on Sunday and runs out to a 4-1 lead in that first set and just, again, the aggressiveness for Murray on his first serve. You look for him in the match. He makes 60% of his first serves, wins 67% of those first serve points overall in the match, but was over 70% in that first serve to start out, uh, first set to start out, and again, was just hitting so aggressively. I think in his first, you know, again, three, four service games, he lost just like three, four points on serve, and you know, was playing aggressively, was moving forward, was taking advantage of Alcaraz's service position and serving and volleying and playing plus one and just most impressively his willingness to suffer in the corners of the court when, you know, Alcaraz, who hit such a heavy forehand and was firing that forehand inside out into the Murray backhand corner. Was Murray slicing? No. Murray was taking the ball early on the rise, hitting through it. I haven't seen Andy Murray do that since 2017, at least that confidently over the course of a three-hour match. And look, obviously for Alcaraz, he slowed down. He found his rhythm. He started extending points, 10, 15, 20 shots. He started opening up the backhand to hit that forehand inside in. And I think the one thing we did see for Andy Murray, the inside, uh, the on the run forehand, still not quite there. And, you know, getting out of that corner, if Murray did track down that first forehand, it was getting to that second ball. Still a bit of a struggle for Andy Murray getting out of corners. But of course, again, he's also at this point 34 years old and has had multiple hip surgeries. So you can understand why his speed out of the corners may have diminished. That said, 
they didn't diminish by much. And he got better and better as this match progressed. And you look for Murray again in his 5-7-6-3-6-2 victory. It was the constant changing of tactics. He was willing to suffer physically with Alcaraz in those 10, 15, 20-shot rallies. He kept driving that ball into the Alcaraz backhand corner, forcing him to cheat over as far as possible to try and find forehands. And even still then, going back to that ad corner, he wasn't afraid of the inside-out forehand because he was hitting the ball so uh, cleanly out of the backhand corner and just you know again for Murray obviously the headline shot he sees Alcaraz cheating 12 feet behind the baseline on the return of serve looking for a forehand he incorporates the underhand serve and he catches him off guard and he uses it to hold and you saw it perfectly epitomized on the match point kick serve out wide take advantage of Carlos Alcaraz's return position serve and volley high forehand volley easiest volley to hit in tennis puts it away for a winner he earns himself the match and just you know, these conditions are perfect for Murray because it's not a clay court. So this, from a stability standpoint, it's just a little bit easier for him to start and stop uh, in and out of corners. And then again, it slows everything down. Yes, Alcaraz's ball was high bouncing, but from a strength perspective, Andy Murray's where he has always been. And we saw that strength epitomized in his ability to take that inside out Alcaraz forehand on the rise and just look, I mean, the numbers weren't incredible at the end. 59% first serve percentage that's below you know that's below where he's at 60% for the season. He won 67% of his first serve points. That's below his average for the season. Now 56% won on second serve points. That's above where he's at. He fought off 8 of the 10 break points he faced. Again, hold percentage wise, he's right on number. You look for him from a return perspective. Murray created 11 break point chances for himself, converted on 4 of them, won 53% of his second serve return points. To beat Carlos Alcaraz on this surface, a slow, hard court win, you know, for Alcaraz, footwork is never an issue. Tenacity, speed is never an issue. And this win has more to do with Murray than it does with anything Alcaraz was doing wrong. And watching Alcaraz get patient in that first set, start driving through his backhand a little bit more, just not forcing himself into corners to give Murray all the space to work with. I thought Alcaraz played a pretty good match. That Andy Murray was able to come through in three sets and look as sound physically as he was throughout the course of the three sets, how can you not get excited after a performance like that? And just, again, you look for Andy Murray now, 16 and 12 here, uh, excuse me, 16 and 11 here in 2021. You look for him now from a rankings perspective. Murray is approaching the top 100, folks. You look for Andy Murray now with this result. I believe currently in the rankings, oh, I forgot last year's Indian Wells points fell off, or 2019. So he's all the way down to number 172 right now. Would need a hell of a run to get back into the top 100 with this result. But you look for him, points accumulated here on the season. Andy Murray, number 106. Now that is a race where he can get himself into the top 100 from a points perspective here on the season. Once the rankings protections come off, that's what matters for Andy Murray. That's the thing to monitor. One more victory here. He ends up at number 99 in the points race right now. That puts him in position next season to just get into Grand Slams. And of course, the good news for Andy Murray is he will never have to worry about getting into an event in his life. If he wants to play it, the wild card will be there. Most importantly for Murray, though, the form is starting to be there as well. And you know his frustrations. He wears them on his sleeves each and every match. The smile on his face, playing in front of a full crowd, and credit to that Indian Wells crowd who brought the noise for Andy. Uh, again, Super exciting atmosphere. 
how can you not enjoy watching Murray on his comeback three-set win over an informed Carlos Alcaraz again? And I don't, I think Carlos Alcaraz and Indian Wells are going to match together very well. That's, you know, steak and red wine. That's a very nice pairing moving forward. I wonder in this scenario, I think Alcaraz is the steak and I think Indian Wells is, is the red wine in this scenario. California wine, I don't know why Alcaraz would be steak. I guess he's kind of beefy, but point being that they're going to pair well over the course of time. But time is not yet ready to give up on Andy Murray. Three-set victory for him. Certainly one of your matches of the day. If that was 1A, you know, 1B, probably Layla Fernandez, U.S. Open finalist. Uh, now up to top 30 in the world. Still just 20, uh, excuse me, still just 19 years old. Three-set victory for her over a fellow slam finalist here this season in Anastasia Pavlichenkova. And I I don't want to attack a straw man here, but I do want to bring to the attention of all of you listeners, we shouldn't undervalue the importance and the impressiveness of this win for Fernandez, who, yes, entered the event as a money line favorite, entered the event as the tennis abstract slight favorite via the singles forecast. But you look for Leila Fernandez. Yes, she's coming off of a slam final in New York. Let's be clear. Pavlochenkova has been a top 20 minimum player this season. And you look in the points race, Pavlochenkova currently leads uh, Leila Fernandez. You look for Pavlochenkova right now, even with this loss, she's 11th in the points race, 24-49. You look for Leila Fernandez, she's currently 21st at tw- uh, 2,030 points. So again, 419 points fewer than Anastasia Pavlochenkova this season. You look at the advanced metrics, overall ELO rating, Pavlochenkova currently ranks at 33. That's interesting. Leila Fernandez at 31 there. You look 2021 specific uh, results. Leila Fernandez right now uh, currently at number 24. You look for Pavlochenkova. She's currently at number 35. Of course, you look overall in the year, Pavlochenkova 25 and 17 entering this event. Fernandez 23 and 16. Fairly similar seasons. And even the metrics suggest as much. You look for Leila Fernandez, 70.5% hold percentage, 34.7 break percentage. You look for Pavlochenkova on the season. Uh, she's also, you know, right around that top 25 club. She's at 69.7 hold percentage. Slightly higher in terms of break percentage. She's at 39.1. But Point being, the metrics suggested, the recent results suggested it as well. This match was absolutely a pick And for Layla Fernandez to, you know, she gets the break back, dramatic break back. She's trailing by a break for the majority of the first set. She ends up working her way back into the set, getting the break back for five, uh, for, excuse me, five all, gets broken right away. And just again, for Pavlochenkova, then closes out the set 7-5, goes up in immediate one-love break in the second set. Yet, what have we learned about the 19-year-old Canadian Fernandez? We've learned that she just straight up does not quit. And of course, you look for her round of 32 through the semifinals, four consecutive three-set wins over Osaka, Kerber, Svitolina, Sabalenka at the U.S. Open. She does it again here against Pavlochenkova, 5-7-6-3-6-4 win over the number nine seed. And just for Leila Fernandez, it's how easy the game comes to her. You name a shot, she owns it, whether it's Inside-out forehand, inside-in forehand, 
ball on the rise, elevating that ball 30 feet above the net to give herself some depth, some time defensively. Of course, she can do all of these things on the backhand wing as well. Her ability to play slice on the backhand side, her ability to play drop shot on the backhand side, her ability to hit the swinging volley, her ability to hit the overhead. And then did you see, it was literally a jumping ace. I know most people jump into their serve, but there feels like there was a little extra oomph in the jumping ace down the T Fernandez hit on match point to seal the 6-4 third set victory over Pavlochenkova. There's just a lot to love about Fernandez's game. And you look for her yesterday, she wins 69% of her first serve points, fights off nine of the 13 break points that she faces. She just scraps. She claws, and physically she can match all of the challenges. Again, from a shot-making perspective, outer thirds of the court, doesn't matter. She's so fluid in and out of those corners that she's able to hit the ball comfortably. And of course, even with the court speed here, you know, that shows off her quickness that much more. And yet she still, despite not being the biggest in stature, does have the power with her quickness to not only beat you to the spot, but also, you know, with her strength to blast the ball by you and she can change direction so well. She had Pavlochenkova in her own head. She was going, you know, inside in, inside in with forehand after forehand plus one ball. Then in the second set, she started going inside out. Then in the third set, she's mixing up her directions. And, you know, again, she's incorporating the slice. She's making passing shots when pressed. Now, credit to Pavlochenkova, who served extraordinarily well in the first set and just uh, she found a rhythm again from like five all, from five all to, I would say, yeah, the first three, four games of that second set were just everything she was hitting cleanly from the baseline ended up as a winner, just penetrating the court and putting Fernandez in some sort of difficult uh, position. And of course, look, there were times when Pavlochenkova overwhelmed Fernandez with her power and just had easy plus one balls off of her serve. But that's a credit to Pavlochenkova. And again, Pavs is a top 15 player here this season. And Fernandez was able to overcome that power deficit at times, flip the script of the match, two hours, 41 minutes for Leila Fernandez to earn the victory. You look for Fernandez now in terms of the live ranking. She's up to a new career high of number 27. As I mentioned, 21st right now in the points race. She trails, nine, we'll say, 8th place technically Alina Svitolina because I'm not including Osaka or Barty. She trails 8th place Alina Svitolina. By about 471 points. Not by about. That's exactly what it is. 471. Now, again, they're both into the Indian Wells round of 16. Now we're playing from some for some big points here moving forward. You look for Leila Fernandez. She just continues to find ways to escape, to scrap, to claw. You look for her here now, of course, in 2021. She's 25-16 and 16 overall in the season. You look for her, though, against top 20 opponents. 5-2 and two overall. All five of those victories, of course, coming since the U.S. Open. But, I mean, what a gauntlet of wins. Osaka, Kerber, Svitolina, Sabalenka, and Pavlochenkova on this slow, hard court. Impossible to be anything but impressed with the 19-year-old Fernandez, who, again, advances with a three-set victory, 5-7-6-3-6-4, over Anastasia Pavlochenkova. You look for Fernandez. Now she is going to be matching up with Shelby Rogers. Rogers making the most of the Benchich withdrawal. Rogers earning a straight set victory, 6-love, six 6-2 six over Arena Camilla Begu. You look at the other notable women's results on the day. We did see a couple of upsets by seed, but I would say only one significant upsets. Alexander Sasnovich continues to have hell of an Indian Wells. You beat Radikanu, you beat Simona Halep, both in straight sets. You're going to have our attention. And of course, for Sasnovich, who came into the tournament ranked number 100 in the world, 
She secured her spot in the top 100 for the year-end rankings, secured her spot in the Grand Slams at least to start the 2021 season. She's up to number 83 now in the live rankings. And for Sasnovich, you look for her overall in the season. It's been a pretty solid year. You look over, it's now 24 and 19 on the year, 56% win percentage. She's made four quarterfinals, I believe, on the season. They came in St. Malo, in Belgrade, uh, in Cleveland, excuse me, now round of 16. So three quarterfinals on the year, plus this round of 16. You look for her at the slams. Third round for her in Wimbledon was the big standout. Also won a match in Roland Garros, but you look at the losses. Conteve, Sabalenka, uh, Kerber, and then at the U.S. Open, she drew Rabakina first round. That is exactly how you fall out of the top 100 when you just get brutal draws like that. And so, you know, for Sasnovich, though, she's been playing qualifying at the high-level events, having success. She qualifies into Cincinnati, uh, ends up making round of, uh, you know, ends up getting knocked out three sets first round there, but uses that success to end up making quarterfinals in that Cleveland run. She, you know, has tried to play qualifying in Madrid, in Berlin this season, tried to stay competing against the best of the best. You look for Sastovich now overall on the year against opponents ranked outside the top 100, 12 and 6 for her. You look for opponents ranked outside the top 50. She's 19 and 12 overall on the season. She should still be a top 100 player. And you look at the points race right now for Sasnovich. She's currently 60th overall in the points race. You look at the advanced metrics for her 85th in overall ELO rating. You look in 2021 specifically, she's 91st. Point being, she belongs in the top 100. So it's good to see her have this run. But what was so impressive in her 0-4 victory, uh, excuse me, in her victory, not 0-4, I don't know why I said that, in her victory over Simona Halep, 7-5-6-4, was just how rock solid she was across the board. She made 82% of her first serves in this match. And on a surface where neither Sasnovich nor Halep are going to be creating free points with their first serve, it was important to play high percentage and at a minimum get the point started at neutral because it was difficult for Simona Halep to penetrate the court at all in this match. Just, you know, the depth of her ground strokes was a little bit off and whenever she tried to amp up the pace, she would find herself making unforced errors and much like Andy Murray, what's so gravitating about Simona Halep is she's so human when she's out on court and, you know, Sasnovich was calm as a cucumber and just, again, whether it was her willingness to go backhand down the line, her willingness to move forward, just how aggressive she was in her service game. She was only broken twice, saved four of the six break points she faced on the match, won 63% of her first serve points, 58% of her second serve points. She just continued to apply pressure on Halep, and she never cracked because Halep, of course— did go into backboard mode, did go into relentless consistency, moving the ball around the court and corner to corner to corner. And yet, because the ball was sitting up a little bit for uh, Sasnovich, because it was a little bit more difficult for Halep to penetrate the court, Sasnovich was able to be the aggressor. She measured herself, waited for the right ball in the rally, would take the backhand up the line, or, you know, again, would hit the approach shot forehand, would work her way to the net. And Sasnovich is a very accomplished volleyer. And so to see her have success should not, uh, should not have been surprising by any of us. And by the way, you look for Sasnovich in her career in tour level matches uh, across surfaces for Sasnovich, her career on grass courts. She's 11 and 13. On hard courts, she's 134 and 95 on clay courts 32 and 38 uh, I, I, the idea of a slow hard court I never have hated that for her 
and clearly, again, it gets her that much more time to get into her shots. She showed the discipline as well. This is a heck of a result for Sasanovich, who, by the way, you look at her career. Let's see. In terms of premier-level matches, uh, premier round of 16s for Sasanovich. Overall, this is, I believe, uh, well, in terms of high-level matches, I guess it depends on how you qualify premier. I guess Madrid, she made a round of 16 in 2019. Brisbane round of 16 2018 but I don't know if that counts to this level the point being this run to the round of 16 at Indian Wells one of the most successful runs by scale in her career of course she's made one round of 16 at the Grand Slams that was a round of 16 Wimbledon 2018 for uh, her to beat you know this version of Radakanu as well and you look for her uh, to beat Radakanu who I think is a top 20 player right now no technically just outside the top 20 but you look for her her wins over Radakanu and Halep uh, technically 15th 16th 17th wins over top 20 opponents of late I guess it's not a win over Radakanu she's not in the top 20 the point being it's a very impressive run. Leave all of that in, West, off my nomenclature debate. What is or isn't a top 20 player? Narada kind of top 20 in the points race. Rankings right now a bit boofy. The point being, this is a very good victory for Alexandra Sasinovich, who's taken out the seats in her section. And you look now in this portion of the draw, she's going to take on Vika Azarenka. After Vika, impressive. The two-time Indian Wells champion, 7-5, 6-4 victory for her over number seven seed Petra Kvitova. You look for Vika on the match. One eight, that, that can't be right. It says 86% of her second serve points. I do not believe that is correct. And you look for Victoria Azarenka. In fact, that was indeed a typo. You look for her overall in the match. She wins 50% of her second serve points, 59% of her first serve points, 8 of 12 on break point chances. It was a funky match. Again, neither player having that much success penetrating the court with their serves. Plenty of breaks exchanged throughout. But you look for Vika just a little bit more dynamic uh, in terms of her movement around the court. She was a little bit more dynamic in the outer thirds of the court. She did such a good job absorbing the first forehand of Kvitova, redirecting that ball down the line and pressuring that Kvitova backhand as well and just giving herself time to hit through her own forehand. It was a really impressive result for Vika to advance in straight sets. You look at the other matches on the day. Again, all seeds advancing. Ostapenko, three-set victory for her over Yulia Putenseva. Putenseva made that match physical, and it looked like she had cracked Ostapenko, but then Ostapenko came out firing four-love lead at the start of the third. She just has so much time on her hands on these Indian Wells courts, and you can't give Yelena Ostapenko time because she's got the sort of weapons that she can't hurt anyone. You look elsewhere, I mentioned the Rogers victory 0-2 over Begu, Sviantek 1-0 over Kudermatova. I mean, on a slow-bouncing uh, hard court, it's, it's almost Roland Garros for her, and we saw her reach this degree of dominance there. No reason she can't do this here as well. That's certainly a win you should all take notice of. Moving forward through the draw, of course, for Alina Svitolina after losing 7-6 in the third in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open to Leila Fernandez to get a 7-6 in the third victory, come back from a set deficit against Serana Kirstea. It's big for the confidence. And, of course, for uh, Svitolina, she's defending semifinal points here. Getting her into the round of 16 certainly helps. And by the way, for Svitolina now, she's now in eighth place in the points race. If you exclude Osaka, if you exclude Barty, as it's you know a reasonable inference to be doing, she right now has put herself in a position to qualify for Guadalajara. And 
you look at the players still alive in Indian Wells because the players immediately behind her, Pavlochenkova, Mertens, both have been eliminated. Her and Jess Pegula, both through the round of 16. Uh, Svitolina, 96-point lead on Pegula. Goff's playing tonight. If she wins that match, it will be a 66-point lead for Svitolina. Ditto for Contave Kerber. Uh, Svitolina would have about 150-point, 200-point lead over each of them, respectively. It's on her racket, though. If she keeps winning, she'll keep having those leads. She just has to match them, if not exceed them. She's put herself in a position to make the year-end finals. And again, sneaky quality season for Alina Svitolina, who with this result now keeps her live ranking at number six. Again, that's big as she had semifinal points to defend at this event. Of course, your other winners on the day, the last one I haven't mentioned, Jessica Pegula, another round of 16 for her at a major hardcore event. It's been clockwork for her all season long. Sincerely, you name it, she's made the quarterfinal. You look for Jess Pegula, sneaky candidate for the year-end finals. She's currently 23rd, but again, she only trails, let's see, Alina Svitolina right now. Pegula's in 20, uh, excuse me, she's in, not in 23rd, excuse me, Pegula's in 13th in the points race. She only trails Svitolina by 96 points. Absolutely in contention for the year-end finals. Absolutely. She's accumulated the most points of any American woman right now on tour. Uh, by that metric, you would argue she's been the best in another round of 16 for her. This time, 4-1 and one over Jasmine Paulini. Those were your first half of the women's round of 32. Of course, we had the back half of the men's round of 64. I want to talk about those here to round out today's show. We talk a lot of Jensen Brooksby here on this podcast, so I'm sure some of you listeners are sick of it at this point, but you look for Brooksby. I mean, Zverev was in complete command of that match. Broke him to start uh, the set. Uh, broke him, excuse me, to start the match, and you look for Zverev. I believe on serve he lost, I think, five total points uh, in terms of points on serve in that first set. You look for Alex Zverev. Here we go. I can get you guys the exact number. Alex Zverev, points on serve in set number one. He wins, uh, He wins. excuse me, 23 of the 33 points he plays on serve, but was just a dominant performance for him. Breaks in the first game and, you know, faced one break point. He saved it. He, w- he was in control from start to finish, but then he fell asleep at the wheel. And you know what you can never do? Fall asleep at the wheel against Jensen Brooksby, who just on a slow, hard court, he's got that much more time to track down the ball. He's always been a shot maker. The single best value uh, skill he might have other than his relentless consistency are just his hands, his placement, his ability to put the ball anywhere on a dime. He started taking the return a little bit earlier, started taking the ball a little bit earlier in rallies and you know takes that second set 6-3, but then... I mean, Zverev came out guns blazing, and some of the backhands he hit in that second in that third set were just ridiculous. And so, six one in the third for the number three seed to begin his Indian Wells campaign was a success for Tsitsipas as well. Tricky second set, and Pedro Martinez made a lot of magic in uh in the outer thirds of the court, but in the end, six two six four, Tsitsipas ends up with the victory. You look overall. I mentioned this at the top twenty seven of thirty two seeds advancing to the round of 32 on the men's side. That's the most since the tournament expanded to 32 seeds in 2004. Two of the seeds, unfortunately, not going to be joining the round of 32. Felix Ogier, Aliasim, disappointing 4-2 loss. Yes, it's ideal conditions for the game of Albert Ramos Vanolas, who has had a ton of success by his standards at Indian Wells over the years. A couple of round of 32, round of 16 performances for him, but he just, FA never found his rhythm. 
under 60% first serve percentage, just couldn't find a way to get his forehand penetrating the court and creating chances for himself to put volleys away at the net as well. Just, again, kind of forced his way, never found his comfort level. Good win for Robert Vespinola, certainly, but interesting loss for FAA. You also, uh, in terms of the other seeds knocked out on the day, Lorenzo Sonego, I don't even think this is a bad loss. 7-6-7-6 to Kevin Anderson. Yeah, two tiebreakers against Anderson. How many times did Lorenzo Sonego? I mean, they both broke each other two times on the day, but like, that's it. Come on. It was a, it was a pickup, and Anderson just a little bit better on serve, a little bit better moving forward. This surface perfect for his conditions, but uh, conditions for his serve. But you look at, again, some of the other players who had success here uh, on day one. There are a couple of narratives we've been monitoring, a lot of them coming to fruition. A, the next-gen Americans are making this their event, and they're done with the Brooksby's. They're done with the Cordas. They're done with the Nakashimas. The OG next-geners, Paul, Fritz, Tiafo, uh, and uh, who am I missing? Paul, Fritz, Tiafo, and Opelka, all through to the round of 32 for Taylor Fritz, 3-4 and four victory over Brandon Nakashima. You give him a little bit extra time like these Indian Wells courts do. If you minimize his biggest weakness, which is his movement, the rest of his game, I mean, how explosive he is from the ground stroke, his kick ser- his ground strokes, his kick serve, absolute money, fantastic victory for Fritz. I was shocked that Ernesto Escobedo was the favorite against Christian Garin. It just feels like a slow hardcore of Indian Wells will be perfect for Garin, and not surprising thus to see Garin's 7-5-6-2 victory over Escobedo in the end. You look at the other seeds who advanced on the day, the Italians look freaking good. I know it was a tough loss for Sinego, but you know, Berrettini 4 and 5 against the lefty to be low. Berrettini hit some forehands. I don't know if ever just again rally ball forehands where you're just like mamma mia. This guy can whack the ball and you give him a little bit extra time to find his forehand whenever he'd like. He's a dangerous one. Yannick Sinner, Indian Wells, at least two titles in his career. You're hearing it here first. I mean, slow, high-bouncing hardcourt. Everything's in his strike zone. Millman didn't stand a chance, just didn't have a weapon to hurt him with. Two and two for the Sin Man. You look for Gael Monfils, four and two victory for him over Gianluca Madger. Uh, That's a good victory for Gael, particularly, again, slow, bouncing, high-bouncing hardcourt. You like that for him. Crano Busta, another routine, one and four win. Four and five for Demon Hour. That was a much-needed win to just end his season on the right note, hopefully against Vukic. Hatchinov, impressive in a two and five win over Rusevori, Basilishvili, and Isner. Your other winners on the day. That's day four at the 2021 Indian Wells. And just an update for all of you listeners where things stand. We do have, since we're entering the round of 32, I forgot to do this with the women. I may have done it on the Ace of the Day podcast, but where things stand for the men entering the round of 32. Still a clear top four in terms of the percentages, the favorites. DraftKings has Medvedev plus 125, Zverev plus 380, Tsitsipas plus 550, then Rublev plus 900. There's a drop-off to Berrettini, Rude 20 to 1, Hercats 25 to 1, Sinner 28 to 1, then Hachinov and Shapovalov 35 to 1. You look at the tennis abstract forecast again, Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, comfortable favorites. They're the only guys with uh, double-digit numbers. Medvedev 33% Zverev 20.3%, Tsitsipas 12.6%. They then have Rublev 9.1% and a big drop. Karina Busta 3.9%, Sinner 3.6%, Berrettini 2.8%, Rude 24 You then get to Hercats at 1.7%, Schwartzman at one2 
The odds makers, the percentages, see this as a three, four-man race, and the results dictate. I think they're a little underrated on Berrettini right now. I think they're a little underrated on Sinner. I think they're closer to that top four group than they are to the rest of everyone else. But we talk about it all the time. You know, key three. Well, the numbers suggest it is a key three. Medvedev, Zirev, Tsitsipas, then a dip-off. Then Rublev sort of on a tier in his own, although, of course, again, we would throw Berrettini and Sinner there right now, and we know Sinner's going to get to that top tier eventually. It's just a matter of if. I may even throw him, you know, right now. I would, if you told me swap percentages, Sinner and Rublev give Sinner a 9.1% chance to win this event and Rublev a 3.1%, uh, 3.6, I would probably agree with that. That's how good the Sin Man looked on day one, two, and two over Millman. But again, that's where things stand, entering the round of 32 for the men, uh, of course. Second half round of 32 here on Monday for the women. First half for the men. We have offered our picks already on the GSP Ace of the Day segment. We'll have picks for you there tomorrow as well. Recap here on the Mini Break Podcast for all of you in case you miss any of the action. Of course, if you've missed any of our content, all of it available on our website, crackrackets.com. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout-out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fleeter and Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout-out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for our super producers, Fliegner and Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. And from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 